Gay Mormon Stories is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. To support this podcast, please donate today at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. And thanks for listening. And so I came home from France, back to Minneapolis, with a very clear sense, okay, now I'm going to explore gay relationships. Okay. So that's what I did. And, you know, that was terrifying. (laughs) And... A new set of challenges. And liberating. You know, part of what I was faced with was like, how do I do this? And one of the first things that became clear to me is that, well, where was I going to meet people but in the gay community, right? I mean, if you want a relationship with a man, you're going to have to probably meet somebody where you're likely to meet other right. gay men. go where they are. You go where they are. And where they are is, is the gay community. And then what I quickly learn is that, you know, there's a whole different set of norms about, like, how do you date, And what I discovered is that if you haven't fallen in bed with somebody by the second date, they're starting to wonder if you're really interested in them. Right. And it's very common to, like, meet somebody and have sex with them first before you decide whether you want to date them. Right? And so I was dealing with all of this, and there was part of me that was like, this was so contrary to everything that I assumed about how you would, you know, go about pursuing a relationship. But I think that at that point, I had explored the options to the point where I was like, okay, if you're going to explore this option, you have to just do it. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to just see what happens. And so, you know, the first date that I went on with the guy, we had sex. And I remember that being really exhilarating and exciting and fun and crazy. And afterwards also feeling a kind of like, what have I done? You know, and I know it's kind of cliched, but a kind of emptiness, you know, but I thought, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm going to explore this. And so I dated for a while. I, I eventually met this guy that I was sort of fell head over heels in love with. We dated for probably about six months, and then he broke up with me, broke my heart. I was like, literally, because at that point, I had visions of, you know, he was going to be my life partner. Right. And... And as gay people, we've never gone through teenage infatuations yeah, and right. gone through teenage breakups and we right. just don't know how to take them right. in perspective. You know, and I'm at work and I'm like literally just weeping at work and to the point that I had to go to my supervisor and say, I need to go home. And then I like cried for three days when he broke up with me and I was just felt shattered and Then I, like, dated another guy, and and I thought he was the one. And then he broke up with me, too. And then I dated another guy. And same thing. Again, we dated for a few months. He breaks up with me. I feel shattered. 
And the third guy that I dated was kind of like, oh, I don't really believe in relationships. I just feel like, you know, friendships are friendships and sex is sex and they don't have to be together and you can have sex with somebody just to meet those physical needs and you can meet your friendship needs from somebody else and that which was really confusing to me and I entertained the notion. I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, it's rejecting the marriage model. It is. Which, it, it was. Which some people, both gay and straight, have right. contemplated. In, right. And, and I, did, I did contemplate it. And after he, actually, after he broke up with me, by that time I was kind of becoming jaded on the marriage model. And I was starting to think, geez, you know, am I even going to find a guy who wants to be in a relationship? And I went through this very promiscuous stage, which I've written about on my blog. And, you know, because I was exploring that. Now, I think there I was kind of maybe going beyond, (laughs) well, the Spirit said, explore all your options. So that was a difficult time for me. Because I I think that in some ways I had kind of strayed outside of what at some level I really felt was the kind of moral behavior that my relationship with God would have demanded. I think at some level I felt that way. I mean, you obviously had to be trying to put it in perspective because part of coming out is that you have to let go of part of the moral code you had. Yeah. And it makes you have to question the rest of the moral code And so when you get in that environment, it's pretty normal to kind of play by the rules there. But that model doesn't take into account what you really need in your spiritual needs in the perspective of your sexuality and your relationships. And and so gay Mormons particularly start out with a disconnect between their spiritual life and their sexual life, and they, they don't really realize that there can be a connection of those two. Right. And it sounds like for you, having them disconnected was not satisfying for you, was making you feel, well, the emptiness, I guess, was what you were getting out of it. Not that I would judge and say, well, it's wrong to be promiscuous or explore right. or whatever. My judgment right. is important. Or even that God was judging you for it. However, it wasn't necessarily getting you where you wanted to be with yeah. it, although you weren't. It yeah. sounds like you weren't sure quite where you could go with it. Yeah. You know, what I can say about it, at least from the perspective of my current spiritual path, is that that time in my life was probably the time in my life where I felt furthest away from the Spirit of the Lord and where I was less consciously aware of my relationship with God and, and consciously it's, it's not that God had like abandoned me or that, you know, it's not like I was living this like riotously evil life or whatever. It's just that I felt very distant from God though. I, I felt like God was out there somewhere and I felt like I was on a journey that, you know, had been blessed by God. You know, God had basically said to me, go explore And so here I was exploring, and I was, you know, you get exposed to a whole bunch of different perspectives, and 
I think during this time of my life, I was more open to exploring atheism as a philosophy, for example, and and I was kind of interested in what people said about you know the different ways of looking at sexuality, looking at God, looking at you know who we are as human beings, and and what human nature is, and and what it means to be gay, and you know I was exploring like queer spirituality, and for at least a two or three years I was pretty involved in the radical fairy community and so there was there was a lot of that kind of exploring going on and like I said I think now looking the back, radical fairy which I know a little bit about but why don't you just explain it yeah uh, it's sort of a counterculture within the gay community which is sort of like the men's movement except that it's takes away gender defining Right. things. It allows you to be feminine and masculine at the same time. But it's also, for a lot of people, a spiritual exploration, but it's yeah. also highly liberal sexually. Yes, all of those things. Okay. And so you'll go to a radical fairy gathering and you'll see a guy like wearing army boots and a beard and a frilly dress and right. lipstick. And it's sort of like the gay hippies. <laughs> kind of like gay hippies, very much. And and there's also this kind of like pagan spirituality aspect and, right. um, you know, all of this stuff. And so I explored that for a while, but I wasn't, I, I mean, I can say now, that, you know, from the perspective of how I am grounded spiritually now, that I wasn't really spiritually grounded at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was learning things, I was exploring things, but I didn't really feel the sense of the Spirit's presence in my life that I do now, or, or that I did prior to that time. So so I felt like I was kind of wandering in this wilderness for for quite a while, and then uh, I met Euron. Euron and I met at the Gay 90s. We, gay 90s is a... It's a big gay bar. Big institutional gay bar in Minneapolis. It's been there forever. And it's huge. It's like the biggest gay bar west of Chicago and like east of L.A. or whatever. Right. So I had been going out to the gay 90s on weekends with friends and, you know, I'd kind of dance and meet guys there. And, and I remember that on numerous outings to the gay 90s, I had seen Euron there and I remember seeing him and thinking, oh, he's kind of, he's kind of cute. You know, I might like to get to know him better, but I could never like get up the guts to like go introduce myself to him. I wanted to though. I thought, and he was always surrounded by this like bevy of gorgeous young guys, and he always seemed to be like the queen reigning on her throne or whatever, <laughs> and. He'll kill me when he hears this. <laughs> I can edit it out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but he, you know, I mean, he just was very attractive to me in in the sense of of seeming very charismatic. But he's also just a beautiful man, and so I'd kind of had my eye on him. Well, unbeknownst to me, he had had his eye on me too, and he'd been seeing me at the gay nineties, and he was the one who got up the courage one day to one night to come introduce himself to me and ask me if I wanted to dance. And he was a dancer. He's a very talented dancer. Mm -hmm. And so he literally swept me off my feet. And we ended up like dancing together the whole night. And so we, we went home together and 
then we decided that we wanted to see more of each other. And so we started dating and there's just kind of a funny story. I'll just sort of share it. It's, it has nothing to do with anything, but it's kind of a funny story about how we had first met. At the end of the night, you know, the bar closes and we're like, well, I guess we need to go home. And somehow he had gotten the idea that he was coming back to my place. And I had somehow gotten the idea that I was going back to his place. And so we left the bar and we just started wandering. <laughs> each each of us assuming that the other was leading him <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and <laughs> we ended up like in the middle of nowhere in the warehouse district, like in the middle of a bunch of train tracks. And I was like, where are you taking me? And he said, I'm not taking you anywhere. Where are you taking me? And so we ended up going back to my place. So life started out together as a journey of wandering aimlessly. Wandering aimlessly. but <laughs> Or thinking the other person knew where they were going. Right, maybe. right. So... You're on, basically, his side of the story is that he knew right from the beginning that I was the person he wanted to spend the rest of his life with, and he wanted an exclusive monogamous commitment, and and he knew I was the one. And I, basically at that point, I knew I liked him. I knew I was very attracted to him. He was a fun person, and, the, and the, the more I got to know him, there were qualities in him that I really admired, his generosity. He was very generous with everybody he knew, and he was somebody that I could talk to about feelings and things like that. And so there was this kind of, there was a comfortableness that I felt with him. Uh, so, and I liked that. But at that point in my life, I had kind of hardened in this viewpoint or this perspective that being gay means we don't have to follow heterosexual norms and we don't have to make this big commitment to each other and, you know, we can just kind of see where this goes. And and um, So you're kind of buying into that yeah, at yeah. this point. Yeah, I had pretty much bought into that at this point and... I was not ready for an exclusive commitment to him. And I pretty much kind of told him that, which I think was really hard for him. But you were still young, too. I mean. I, well, I was still young. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm still in my 20s at that point. And it kind of got to this difficult place in our relationship where he was becoming more sort of possessive and wanting me to make a more exclusive commitment to him and where I was kind of feeling boxed in and constrained by that. It's it's so stereotypical male, the, the, the <laughs> male stereotype or whatever. Yeah. This was by about two months after we had started dating and, and so I broke up with him and that shattered him. I think it kind of shattered him in the way that it had shattered me after that first like relationship that I'd had where I felt like he's the one and he breaks up with me. Uh -huh. And I think it had a similar impact on Euron and Euron was kind of like, how could this have happened to me? Because I knew he was the one. I just knew it. So we, we broke up. And so I continued to sort of live this sort of promiscuous lifestyle that I had 
been living at that point. So about nine months later, I walked into, I was involved at that point in some gay community activism at the University of Minnesota. I was one of the organizers of what we at that time called the network. Uh, And then it became the LGBT network. And we were sort of an umbrella organization for a whole bunch of different gay and lesbian groups on campus. Because there were like, at the law school, there was a group and then there was the UGC, which was mostly undergrads. And then there was another organization for grad students. And there was university lesbians and there was the UBI community. And so, so there were all these like different groups and the network was sort of bringing all of these groups together so that we could begin to lobby the administration for a bunch of things. We wanted a a study done on, on campus violence against LGBT people. We wanted to sort of study the campus climate and look at homophobia. We wanted to explore the possibility of an LGBT studies program and so on. So there was all this, and I was involved in this um, national gay graduate students organization, and I helped to organize the third national queer graduate students conference in queer studies. And we did it at the University of Minnesota, and I was just... We're in the late 80s now. Right. This is like... Well, early 90s even. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm involved in all of this. So I walk into, we're having this meeting of the network at this newly established programs office that I had been instrumental in helping to create. And I, I had been on the search committee that had hired the director of the programs office and so on. And I walk into this room and who should walk in as the representative of the gay fraternity but you're on. And the minute I saw him, something just clicked for me. I was like, I have felt pretty empty for a long time. And I saw him and I realized that I had feelings for him and that if I was going to spend my life with somebody that he was probably the one that I, that I would want to do it with. And so he saw me and he was just like, his face lit up when he saw me and we gave each other this big, long hug. (laughs) And then he sat next to me and we were like holding hands during the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And after the meeting ended, you know, he was like, we should get together. And I was like, yeah, we should. And so our first date after that meeting was we went to, there was some kind of gala reception for the gay pride planning committee or something like that, that he had been invited to. And so he brought me with him to that. And at that point, we just kind of like stuck together like glue. Like every night he was either staying with me at my place or I was staying with him at his place. I mean, literally we were together constantly. And by the end of that summer, both of our roommates were telling us, you guys need to move out. Because his roommates were saying, we can't have John over here all the time. And my you know, roommate was saying, I can't have your on over here all the time. <laughs> and so we, we moved into a house with a bunch of other radical fairies. And your and I have been together ever since. And we... So this is 20... 
years now, or? 20 years as of this past August. Okay. And what I'll say about my relationship with Euron is that he was always the one who was pushing for more and bigger commitments. And I was always a little bit resistant and a little bit hesitant, but ultimately I was going along with him, and ultimately I was learning that he was the one who really understood where we needed to go in our relationship. And, you know, eventually we bought this house together. We moved out of the fairy house and bought this house and and moved in together. And a year before we bought the house, we had a wedding ceremony which he wanted to call a wedding, and I insisted that we were going to call it a ceremony of commitment and friendship. And 110 of our closest friends and family from all walks of life, including members of my devout Mormon family, my grandmother, my parents, a couple of my siblings attended. His whole Iowa family came, and we had this commitment ceremony. And he was the one who'd been insisting you know, I want to do this. I want to get married. And I was yeah. like, why can't we just live together? And he's like, no, no, we have to get married. And I, w- I was kind of like, okay, I'll humor you. That was kind of the spirit that I approached it in. But when it came to the day and we walked into this room together at the Lutheran campus ministry, where I had actually been on staff at the time, I'm sort of putting myself through writing my dissertation and working part-time for campus ministries and and uh, we walk into this room and full of our friends and family, and we have this beautiful ceremony where we make all these promises to each other. And it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had, and I realized that this was changing everything for me, that it wasn't just an empty ritual that we were going through, that the fact that I was making these solemn promises to him to love and care for him and be true to him for the rest of his life. And he was making those promises to me. And we were making those promises before all of these friends and family and before God. And we were asking our friends and family and God to hold us accountable for the promises that we were making. And I realized this was not just an empty ritual. It was powerful. It completely changed my understanding of our relationship. That kind of brings us to the present as far as, you know, my journey in terms of, you know, being gay and my relationship with Euron and coming out and sort of accepting myself as a gay man. Right. So there's more to life, but at least that part of it it, that marked the resolution really of the journey for you of... Of coming out. Of coming out and finding out your potential for forming a partnership, a relationship, a marriage. Right. So before we move on, though, let's talk about two things that we might have kind of passed in the timeline or maybe not. Sure. I just want to do a little sideline on your dissertation. I read the book that you did, and I found it super interesting because it's about the YMCA, which is such an important American institution, and it's also so iconic to the gay community. And I really um, don't think of this as a religious institution, right? I think of it as a gymnasium, right? <laughs> right. Which you talk about in, in your book. 
in your dissertation, which became a book. But, you know, I'd like to just spend just a short minute just going over what, yeah, sure. how you, and getting a PhD in history, in religious studies, yeah. ended up talking about something that ended up being kind of a place that was both religious, but also somehow iconically related to the gay community. So, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I originally came to the University of Minnesota thinking I was going to study immigration. And then coming out changed all of that. Like, as I was coming out, I realized that there were two urgent things that I wanted to have a deeper understanding of. One was my spirituality, my religion, and the other was my homosexuality. And I needed to, I still needed to sort of make sense of my Mormonism. And so I switched topics in terms of my area of study pretty quickly. Like within that first year, I, I went from immigration. I did continue to study immigration, but with a focus on the immigrant church. Okay. And so I was looking at immigrant religious experience, but what I was most interested in was the Northeastern United States culture in the early 19th century. I wanted to study the social context that produced Mormonism, and I wanted to look at the whole broad religious context, which of course means I have to learn study evangelicalism and so I'm studying evangelicalism I'm studying the black church which is also has its roots in the same time frame same geographic area and if you're talking about African Methodist Episcopal Church African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion and some of these other like black denominations that start at this time period and I'm studying Mormonism with non-Mormon professors who are sort of guiding me in, in readings and things like that. So the YMCA became a, a, an interesting topic for me for a number of reasons. One is because growing up Mormon, I had a strong belief in ministry of the laity. And I really liked that part of Mormonism, that we didn't have a paid professional ordained clergy. And for a time, I had explored the possibility of ministry and had explored the possibility of going to Lutheran Northwestern Seminary and even becoming a Lutheran minister. And that avenue was closed off to me when I came out. And so that kind of turned me off so, you know, I had basically very tentatively explored the possibility of being an ordained minister in a Protestant denomination. And that when that was shut to me, I, I thought, okay, I want to go back to this idea of lay ministry. And the YMCA was an organization of lay ministers. Right. They were not ordained clergy. And in fact, they were kind of feisty and a lot of the early rhetoric in the YMCA is like very anti-clerical. It's anti-institutional. They sort of blame the denominations for all of the divisions within Christianity. The YMCA is kind of interesting in that way if you look at the journey of Joseph Smith, right? Because Joseph Smith also is dismayed by the divisions among Christians. Yeah, and why don't we just yeah. point out here that the YMCA in the 1800s, the gymnasiums and the um, youth hostel aspect of it didn't exist. Didn't it exist. was a, more of a Bible study or a religious exactly. um, association for young men to 
you know, pursue and improve themselves in a religious sort of setting. That's right. And it was, it was particularly concerned about the welfare of young men in an urban setting because they saw cities as kind of these nests of iniquity and young men coming to the city from the countryside are being exposed to uh, all of these influences. And the YMCA wanted to basically provide a sort of wholesome religious environment for young men. So they're driven by this sense of mission. They want to save young men's souls. They want to lead young men to Christ. It's a very evangelical organization. And it's, it's a, like I said, it's a, it's a very self-consciously lay-led organization. And, and at that point, I was like, okay, as a gay man, I'm being excluded from ordained ministry. But so I want to explore what does it mean to be a lay minister, like yeah. somebody who has that kind of calling from God. So that was what interested me in the YMCA. And it just so happened that in my second or third year in grad school that the, the University of Minnesota acquired the YMCA archives. Okay. And so initially I started studying the YMCA because I was interested in I was interested in it as an evangelical organization, as a lay men's organization, and I was also interested in it as a men's organization. Right. And Well, you stumbled onto something which can brings us back to the Victorian yes. male romances. There was, you know, in the time men could have a kind of bonding that was soci- that had a sanction of society. And the YMCA yes. it turned out really was a bastion of this male bonding experience that wasn't sexual, although some of them might have been. And so this really was a huge role in that part of their history. The Victorian model of writing each other letters and poetry and and professing love for your dear friend and and, and taking pictures together. (laughs) Right. And the the thing is, the the funny thing is, you, you call it Victorian, but from what I was observing from the manuscript evidence, reading the letters that these young men were writing and sort of learning about the whole ethos of the organization and the sense of mission that drove these young men as they were working together to save the souls of other young men. And to me, it felt very reminiscent of the experience that I'd had as a Mormon missionary. Yeah. And the emotional texture of it and the closeness that I felt with my companions as we were working to save souls. And so I, I felt that I had found some very kindred spirits in, in the early, y- and we're talking the YMCA in the 1840s. Right. So they're contemporaries of early Mormons. So that was what fascinated me about the organization more than anything else. But as time went on, well, let me give you yeah. your next project, the Shakers. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the Shakers. Oh, well, I'm yes. super intrigued by the same elements yeah. about Shakers. But anyway, yeah. I don't want to yeah. digress too much. Well, I, yeah, I did. I mean, of course, I did do reading on, on the Shakers, and that's, that's a whole nother. That was part of my course of study because they were part of that whole social environment and, and time period. But at any rate... What got me on the gay angle with the YMCA, and it's really kind of funny because, you know, everybody thinks of the song, you know, YMCA and the village people and the the whole gay thing. And that was totally not in my mind at all. But what happened was I, I found, first of all, digging through the archives, I found some letters that I could only characterize as love letters between individuals within the organization. 
founding individuals or prominent prominent individuals. individuals. Yeah. And then and then I found another letter in which the unmarried status of one of the leading like the the top four leaders of the national organize, international organization and this letter is commenting on the fact that he's never married and he's now like in his 70s or 80s or whatever yeah. and and comments on it in some fairly denigrating terms and that intrigued me because this particular individual is sort of a hero to me i thought he was like this amazing ymca leader and a very fascinating person and an amazing evangelist. And I mean, literally he, you know, there's one person who could be credited for sort of building the modern YMCA. It was Robert Widensall. And so I I was sort of intrigued. I thought, oh, he was a lifelong bachelor. And then I found these other like descriptions that would talk about this relationship between him and another of the top four. I think his name is Robert McBurney. And the closeness of these two individuals, and how you know that there would you'd read these re- really sort of rapturous descriptions of of the relationship between these two, and how how much they loved each other, and they were both lifelong bachelors. Yeah, and I was like, that's very interesting. And so then I thought, okay, I wonder if I could get any statistics on how many of these leaders, like lifelong leaders of the YMCA were also lifelong bachelors. And, and ultimately I got data. I had extensive records of all of these leaders and I did a a very in-depth statistical analysis of the data. And what I ultimately learned was that about one third of these leaders were like, were lifelong bachelors. And that was an astounding statistic to me. Right. And so I thought I had discovered a sort of lay evangelical version of a Roman Catholic monastic order, <laughs> and, and which was just fascinating to me. And then, you know, to learn that around the turn of the century, the organization itself was taking note of this dynamic within the organization, and that they took con- conscious steps to essentially suppress it. Yeah. And, and so that's that's an important part of the story. And th- it was then and only then that the whole like gay cruising scene at the YMCA and the and the sex that was happening in locker rooms and dormitories because this story is full of ironies. Yeah. And one of the ironies is that they believed that in order to save men's souls, they also had to save their bodies, which is a wonderful principle. And as a Mormon, I totally adhere to it. And so that was how the YMCA started investing in the whole gymnasium thing. And and the symbol of the YMCA, the triangle, represents that intellectual, spiritual, physical. So the YMCA is recognizing that as whole human beings, we have a spirit, a soul that connects with God. We have a mind. We have a body. And all of these things work in harmony. And so... They build these gymnasiums, they invest, and, and they also invest in a heavy way in sex education, right? So they're actually, the YMCA is one of the first institutions, one of the first popular institutions in the country to actually begin talking about homosexuality. And they see it as a scourge and a plague that, you know, we need to, like, fix and overcome or whatever. And But it's at that moment that they begin to 
be concerned about all these bachelor leaders in their own ranks, and they begin to insist that if you're going to be in a high position of leadership in the organization, that you have to be married and so on. And the gymnasiums are part of this program, right? But and also the the lodging because they were the, the, receiving all these sort of migrant young men, and yep. a lot of them would just live there and they want to pro- these right. dormitory rooms that they had. Right, and they want to provide a safe, like, moral Christian environment for people to live in, right? right? But what they're actually doing is they're providing a physical context in which pe- gay men can meet each other and are meeting each other and are having sex. And so to me... And that kind of emerged in the 1900s. So much right. later, a right. long time after their founding. Right, right. But it, but the YMCA developed a reputation for this to the point that you actually have gay novels that are being written in the 1930s that are set in the YMCA. Okay. You know, Donald Vining uh, is one of the great sources for gay history, and he had this you know, extensive journal and he worked for the YMCA. And so he, and he had documented the whole cruising scene that went on in the YMCA in the 1920s and thirties. And, and I flew out to California to interview like gay men who were in their eighties and nineties and ask them about their experiences with the YMCA. And so, you know, I gathered all of this information and, and so I basically was aware of this grand irony which right. is that the YMCA, with the best of intentions, wanted to integrate body, mind, and spirit. But in a way, they were creating a kind of split personality for gay men. Cognitive dissonance. They're, they're driving gay men out of leadership positions in the organization. They're, as an organization, they're saying this is not okay, but they're providing a physical context where gay men are having sex with each other. And so, it, you know, it's the classic law of unintended consequences. But it did play an important role in where the first formations of gay community really happened yes. in this country. And yeah. So this kind of led up to the later developments that came. That, it, with that's the exactly right. Revolution of the '60s and the. That's that's exactly right. So so the YMCA has this very complex right <laughs> role and that's pretty much that's pretty much i mean there might be lingerings of that in some ymcas but it's pretty much now a suburban family institution and so right i think once the gay community had somewhere else to go yeah that the ymca successfully sort of separated themselves from that sort yeah. of connection even though that song right and the song's kind of <laughs> ironic because the whole of America doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. And it's, especially at the time, yeah. it was a popular song and nobody knew really what it was referring to in middle America and at all these sporting events where they're singing those songs. Well, so it's, it's, it's even know, a lot more song, of irony about it. Yeah, I mean, that it's, song was very coded, you know. And, and yeah, it was coded, but it was sung it was, by a group of coded gays who were, that also America didn't know that these were just based on porn model icons, you know, <laughs> right. and they were gay people right. who were formed together to form this sort of group, and they sing every song was totally gay themed, but right. people just didn't know this, and this was the most popular group for a good couple yes. of years there. But that was not the only gay song about the YMCA. Okay. You know, there was a, a jazz singer by the name of Ray Bourbon who sang a song called Queen of the YMCA. Okay. And, you know, there, like I said, there were these novels, and so, you know, I was able to find, you know, that, that there was this sort of whole underground gay culture centered around the YMCA is yeah. you know and they were so, taking advantage of the 
the place as partly its reputation, partly the facility because it was a gym and a dorm. So you had everything you needed. And partly because of it was really a safer place to meet people because the gay bars were so dangerous and the right. outdoor places, the parks yep. were also dangerous. And this is one place that was really relatively protected, yes. even though it wasn't specifically sanctioned by the institution. Yeah. They decided to not try to suppress it in a real hard way for a yeah. lot of reasons. And we can't go into all of them now, but it's... It's such a great book, so I hope you all will go to Google and put John Gustav Rathal's name, and you're going to be able to find his book on Amazon. It's yeah. Tell, what's the name of it? Uh, Take the Young Stranger by the Hand. Take the Young Stranger by the Hand is actually a quote from the charter of the Boston YMCA. Okay. And they talk about how you know you should meet the young stranger at the gates of the city and take him by the hand and show him that noble and Christian spirits care for his soul and you know, sort of bring him into this Christian fellowship. Well, they brought him into a fellowship, and really it was, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the most likely people to immigrate from a rural community are the gay people. They've always had an urban drift, and so they were going to the cities like they do now, Mm -hmm. and so so even if gays are 5% in a normal community, if you take the immigrant community to a big city, it's going to be much higher. It's going to be 30%, so you... Mix them there at the YMCA, and they're right. already going to be thirty right. percent gay. Right. And then... right. Of course, the personal significance of this for me is really it was doing that research and writing that book was really a way for me to, because I was trying to sort of find a way to integrate my sexuality and my spirituality and my, at some level, still fundamental beliefs and faith as a Christian and. You know, at that point, when I defended my dissertation, I had basically been with Euron for a couple of years. Uh-huh. And then the book was published in 1998. Um, so Euron and I had been together for about six years okay. at the point that the book was published. And so I was very much kind of thinking about these, many of the ironies, and feeling like, you know, the YMCA was very much an example of one of these institutions that was serving gay men but also did them a disservice because it didn't understand how spirituality and sexuality could or should be connected for gay people. Yeah. Um, But it was reflecting what society was doing. Yes, definitely. And in a way, you know, you talk about in your book how they did decide to turn a blind eye on it for a number of reasons, but possibly one of their motivations was that by focusing on the sin instead of you're you're not going to be available to help them, and so some of their motivations for sort of letting it happen weren't were maybe in mind on the part of some people. I think, you know, I, I never think there was a point in the history of the YMCA, and this holds true of very many religious institutions, where there wasn't a genuine love for people and a genuine desire to, to help people. And so I think you're right. I see a sort of parallel within Mormon institutions. And like, if you consider the journey of somebody like Bob Reese, who is a bishop of a ward in an urban downtown congregation, singles ward, where you have large numbers of gay men who are just naturally congregating there. And he begins at a perspective of totally not understanding these men or where they're coming from or what their journey is. But out of a genuine love for these individuals, he acquires a, a deepened understanding. And so 
Yeah. And there was also a societal um, rule for a long time about really sort of protecting gay people by letting them stay in the closet, even if they're married, if they're right. in positions of power, that people sort of let them be in the closet, right. even if it was sort of known about. And this was right. throughout society, including Mormon society. And, you know, anytime there was sort of a high-level person who was on the risk of getting exposed, they sort of... Yeah. The church even helped cover it up in cases. So it wasn't just the YMCA that was doing that. It was a tolerant atmosphere. And the intolerance kind of emerged in a huge way in isolated cases when it became blatant. The intolerance became massive really when the gay community became visible. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're yeah. trying to help alleviate now in this part of history. You know, I felt I'm proud of that book. I think it tells a very important piece of the history of the gay community in the United States. It tells an important story about gay people and religion. So I like that book. It's a fun read. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also, you know, it's also something that you didn't talk about in your book, but the sort of you know, intriguing to me is just the, how the society, how the male paranoia about homosexuality has really coincided with the emergence of a gay community. Because prior to the emergence of a gay community, the YMCA's had butt naked swimming. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. they and even other sporting activities, wrestling was just routinely done in the nude. And so to me, you know, this sounds kind of erotic and it would have been less erotic if I was exposed to it every day, even as a gay man, things that's ordinary become ordinary. But, you know, thinking about it now, we just think about the change. I mean, my father describes to me, he took his swimming class naked with, Mm -hmm. you know, a hundred other naked men at the University of Utah. And Mm -hmm. presumably at BYU, it was the same thing. And presumably at the Deseret Gym, it was the same thing. We just, our, our attitudes towards the male body towards mm-hmm. male bonding towards male affection has kind of suffered for straight men based on the emergence of a gay community. And that's also mm-hmm. sort of a parallel process yeah. that's, that's sort of the YMCA reflects because their yeah. policies also absolutely changed. And now, you know, I don't know if they have even group showers in the new buildings. They probably have individual stalls with doors, you know, and no, they and, still have group showers. Oh, <laughs> I haven't been lately, but, but I do know there's a phenomena among young people that they're, they're not being exposed like we were. We didn't yeah. take sh- we took showers with our friends after the gym. We're seeing male bodies nowadays. Young people they only see naked bodies in pornograph yeah. in the porn they find on the internet, and it's in a way it's distorting their mm. version of what a normal body is yeah. like because their only images are on the internet. Their only images are porn, and they don't see their friends yeah. or family naked like we used to. I mean, it was different for women, but men, it was just normal in our day. So anyway, that's sort of an aside, a digression, yeah. but it just kind of comes to mind these phenomena in our society that yeah. this talks about. Yeah. But anyway, let's move to the other theme I wanted to get about before we kind of move forward in your more latest elements of your journey, and that is just the road that you had with your parents towards accepting you, accepting your marriage, accepting you as being gay and be, being an okay person. Yeah, so. right. Well, my parents, you know, as I said, we kind of had a rift initially after I left the church, and it was very hard for them to understand why I had done that. And after about three years, we started talking to each other more. So we were kind of mutually making overtures and things were starting to thaw and they had sort of gone through their grieving process about me leaving the church and 
they were starting to, you know, basically just sort of accept me as I was. And at that point, I was not out to them yet. Well, let me qualify that. I had written in this letter to them that I was homosexual. And then in that really emotionally fraught phone call from Boston to Helsinki, when they confronted me and they were really upset about it, and my dad, just with this kind of like almost rage or I don't know what it was in his voice, it was, but he just was like, what is this that you've written about being homosexual? And basically at that point, I was like, I don't think I'm ready to go there with them about this. So I basically just said to my dad, you know, dad, those are just some struggles that I've been having, but just forget about that part of my letter is basically what I said. You downplayed it. I downplayed it. And so we kind of let go of that. And so three years later, we're starting to talk to each other. And by this time, I'm out to virtually everybody except my family. Uh huh. So... You know, it was getting to the point where I'm starting to, like, I'm writing letters to the editor of the local paper about gay issues, and I'm signing my name, and I'm out very publicly. And I think I even, I was like a keynote speaker at this big Lutheran conference on homosexuality that was co-sponsored by the Minneapolis and St. Paul area synods. And so I thought, it's only a matter of time before my parents are going to find out. And... I was like, this is the last area in my life where I just need to come out of the closet. I I know I'll feel better about it if I talk to my parents about it. And so I actually, I thought, okay, I'm not going to come out to them over the phone. I'm not going to send them a letter. I have to do it in person. I have to be there. But the only time I see my parents lately is at Christmas. And I'm not going to spoil Christmas by coming out to them at Christmas time. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to make a special trip. So you get different versions of this story depending on whether you talk to me or my brother. Okay. (laughs) But basically, so I tell my parents, I'm going to come out for a visit at Easter. So I get a call from my brother. And my brother says, why are you going out to visit mom and dad? And I said, okay, I wasn't going to tell you this until I had a chance to talk to them about it myself, but since you want to know why, I'm going to tell them that I'm gay. And my brother is like, he says, Mom and Dad think that you're going back home to announce to them that you're coming back to the church. And he's like, if you go back and this is what you tell them, they'll be devastated. Now, Mark remembers me pleading with him to tell my parents that, you know, sort of break the news to them first before I go out there. Okay. I remember him pleading with me to let him break the news to them first. So that, and Mark and I have since kind of tried to deconstruct our conversation and figure out how it was that (laughs) we got, like, he thought I was asking him to tell them, and I thought he was asking me to let him tell them. But ultimately, we agreed that that's what was going to happen. He was going to tell them, break the news to them first, before I arrived in person, and then I would discuss it with them more in person. And as it turned out, 
that was a very wise thing for us to do. Well, my father felt that it was very wise. Sounds wise to me. It turned out to be wise. Now, sort of parenthetically, this is an interesting story. It's worth sharing that I had two coming out dreams involving my parents, one involving my mother, one involving my father. In the coming out dream involving my mother, we're sitting in a room that is the living room of the house that my parents are living in in Boston. And the walls are white, the carpets are white, the furniture is white, there's beautiful white light shining in through the windows, and I realize that we're actually in the celestial kingdom. And on the table between me and my mother is a vase with this beautiful red rose, which I think, in my mind, you know, symbolized my sexuality. And in my dream, I said to my mother, Mom, I'm gay. And she said to me, I know. I've always known. And I said, Mom, if you knew, why didn't you say something? Why did you let me suffer for so long? And she said, I just didn't know how to bring it up without embarrassing you. And it was this very loving, I woke up from, I'm crying now, I woke up from the dream with tears in my eyes, and it was this beautiful thing, and I, I was like, my mother's going to be totally okay with this, she's going to understand. The dream with my father involved, we were sitting in the kitchen in Boston, same house, but we're in the kitchen, we're not in the living room. Yeah. And we're definitely not in the celestial kingdom. It's like a very terrestrial <laughs> kitchen in Boston. And I tell my dad, and he gets up and he grabs a big kitchen knife and he chases me out of the house. That was the, the coming out dream with my dad. So your subconscious was expecting a different response from each of them. Obviously. It was. And, you know, it's funny because I've since told both of those dreams to my parents and my father said to me, you were right on. And my dad said, he said, it was a good thing that your brother told us, because if you had told us, I would certainly have said things to you that I would have regretted for the rest of my life. And you have to know my father, because, as I said, I always had a very close relationship with my father, and my father was always a very loving man and was very actively involved in our upbringing and in my upbringing, and he was a man that I could talk to about anything literally until I left the church, and then we had this big rift, and, you know, between the time that my brother told my dad and the time that I arrived in Boston, he had really sort of realized what he needed to do. And so when I finally sat in that very same real-life kitchen yeah. with Dad and Mom together, and we talked about it. The first thing out of his mouth was, I'm sorry that you never felt comfortable telling us about this earlier. And he said, I'm sorry that you almost committed suicide and that we literally weren't there for you and couldn't help you because we didn't know what was going on. And and that was what I needed to hear from yeah. my dad. And 
they very gently broached the topic of reparative therapy. And I made it very clear that that was not going to happen. And they never raised the issue again. But we, you know, we talked and they asked a lot of questions and they wanted to understand. And and it ended up being a very healing, like, two or three days that I was with them. And for the first time, we really did have some very open-hearted conversations. And I just told them my experiences and everything that had been going on. You know, the, the piece of that story that my father has told since then is that as they were taking me to the airport, my mother heard a voice saying, your son is okay. And it was an audible voice for her. Like, literally, she she thought I was speaking, or somebody in the car was speaking. She turned around to see where this voice had come from, and she realized that it was the Holy Spirit. She had heard it audibly, telling her that her son was okay. Yeah, And from that moment on, my mother fully accepted my homosexuality. My father continued to struggle for a while, but he was engaged. And he wanted to understand. And, and any book that I would give him to read, he would read it. And he looked, he found his own books that he read. And he really wrestled with it. And I think it was maybe about a year or two later that I received a phone call from my dad at 11 o'clock at night, which means it was midnight for him. Okay. (laughs) And he said, do you have time to talk? And I said, of course. And he said, do you mind reading a scripture with me? And I said, okay. And he pulled out Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. And we read it, and it's the passage where Jesus talks about the eunuchs. And he says, you know, some are born eunuchs from their mother's womb, some are made eunuchs by men, some become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And my dad said, when Jesus talks about eunuchs who are born from their mother's womb, do you think that he's talking about homosexuals? And I had actually given that some thought. Right. That had actually occurred to me. Well, and so I have a lot of... Yeah, and I very honestly said to my dad, I said, I do think that that is possibly what Jesus is talking about. That was the turning point for my dad, because I think my dad decided that, in fact, that that is what Jesus was talking about. And And they were referring to eunuchs as anyone who was not having a relationship with women. Right. And that was the definition they used at that time as a eunuch, not necessarily someone who was castrated, which is how we use the word now. Right, right. And so that was significant for my dad because he understood this as, here's an example of the Savior talking about homosexuals in a very straightforward way and not in, in any form of judgment. Right. And just saying, some people are born this way. And so, I think from that point on, my dad was pretty much, you know, basically his position, as he eventually explained it to me, was that he believed that I was created this way, that there was nothing wrong with me, that God would bless my relationship with my husband, and that eventually the church would receive a revelation to that effect. And... That's what he believes now. That's what he believes now. And my dad 
has always had a testimony of the church. To this day, he's very committed to the church, but he believes that I have a place in the kingdom of God with my husband. And he's fully supportive of my relationship with Euron, and both my parents are. And from the first time that they met Euron, they just embraced him and loved him. And when we got legally married in California, they they came to our wedding in 1995 when we had the big ceremony here in Minneapolis. And then when legal marriage became an option to us and we took advantage of it in California in July of 2008, I called my parents and said, we're going to go to California to get legally married. From our point of view, the wedding was in 1995 and you came. And so we don't expect you to come again. But at that point, I knew that the church had sent that letter out to those congregations in California. And I thought I should give my parents fair warning. Right. Because I didn't know what kind of conflict this would create for them. As faithful members of the church, me going and getting legally married in California. And my dad said don't get married in June because your mom and I are going to be in Finland and we want to be there. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he made us wait a month. Right answer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, and, and my entire immediate family was there. All of my siblings, my parents, everybody came and, and participated. And including, I want to add that, and I hope I'm not saying too much. And I, I hope if my brother is listening to this, that he, doesn't feel I'm revealing too much, but my brother has since revealed to me that he opposed Proposition 8, but his wife supported it. And I felt that it was significant that both he and Amy came to our wedding, and I felt that Amy was as supportive as she could be. And so I think that's interesting because that was an example of a church member who had a particular view that I disagreed with. She supported Proposition 8, and I felt Proposition 8 was wrong. She supported it, I think, out of a sense of religious duty, also out of a sense of she had issues with the terminology. She wasn't sure she was comfortable calling same-sex relationships marriage, although she wasn't necessarily opposed to that. But I felt that it was a marvelous thing that she could have that conscientious personal belief in that position, but she could also support me and Euron personally and attend our wedding and allow her children to participate in the ceremony. Right, and that's something Mormons could really learn from because I hope a lot of Mormons learn to support marriage equality, but I also hope that well, those who don't learn how to support yeah. their gay family members and realize that some of them, they don't have to agree with all their choices right. to maintain a brotherly relationship, a parental relationship, yes. a loving, compassionate, empathetic relationship. Right. And so if she succeeded in doing that from that right. point, I applaud her. Yes. I think it's, it's a two-way street. I mean, I, I would also hope that people in the gay community would get the message that just because a Mormon or any other person, religious or not, takes this position, political position, that it doesn't necessarily mean they hate us or they're against us or whatever. You know, so I think that 
to me, it was a wonderful example of sort of finding ways to build those bridges of love, even without there necessarily being agreement. I assumed that my brother probably supported Proposition 8. I was surprised. I only learned years afterwards that he personally voted against it and opposed it. And and I was grateful to have that conversation with my brother. I purposely never broached it with him. Right. Because I didn't want to put him in, in an awkward position. Yeah. But my brother hosted us. We stayed in his home when we were in California getting married. And, you know, the proclamation on the family was framed on the wall. But here's the gay brother and the future brother-in-law, you know, staying in his home. And, I mean, ultimately I found out that he was with us on, on that political issue too. But, but to me, it didn't ultimately matter that our relationship as brothers was more important to me than our political views. Yeah, and I think I'm hoping that this is a message that, I mean, I guess the optimistic part of us who are trying to see something good about the new Mormons and Gay website is just this kind of message that we can make some changes in how we treat our gay family members without necessarily changing our doctrine or our political positions, but we can still make gestures of love and empathy And that would be an example of that, even if they're holding the proclamation of the family on their wall. Right. The proclamation of the family does not say exclude them, ostracize them. Right. You know, it doesn't say those things. So as much as I might disagree with the proclamation or not, it doesn't say those things. And your brother and sister-in-law were able to do that. And that's what we're really hoping in the short term, a lot more members will do. Right. Now, you know, that, I mean, my experience with my family might explain somewhat why I'm much more optimistic about that, the the new church website and that whole, you know, Mormons and gays initiative or whatever, because I think people put far too much weight on rhetorical gestures And a lot of the people who were looking for a grand rhetorical gesture from the church, like saying, now we accept same-sex relationships, are very angry about the website and very disappointed. And what my experience has shown me is that sometimes rhetorical gestures only create a lot of heat and debate without necessarily creating enlightenment. And the enlightenment comes in those relationships. Yeah. That, you know, in my case, that relationship with my brother and and his wife, which is a beautiful relationship. So my dad, the, the sort of epilogue to that story is after the wedding, and it was a religious ceremony held in a UCC church performed by a UCC minister. My whole family participated in it. We left the church. We arrive... Ultimately, we, we arrived back at my brother's home, and as we're getting out of the car, my dad raised the issue of that letter that the church had sent out to those congregations in California, and he said four words, they just don't understand. Yep. And that was, that was all my dad felt needed to be said that they don't understand that the church doesn't that the leaders of the church don't understand yet but someday they will so so that's kind of the journey that my parents have been on and they are very very supportive of me and Euron and 
you know, my dad, I think, is not, he's not shy about it. He's not afraid to have his feelings about this known, and he doesn't make an issue of it. He never has. My sister, my sister found a letter that he had drafted that he'd written to the First Presidency, pleading with them to consider this issue. I don't know if he ever sent that letter or not. <laughs> my dad is very committed to the church, and he has a testimony of the gospel that is unshaken, and he has unquestioning commitment to me and belief in me. And, you know, I've told my dad about the many spiritual experiences that I've had in, in relation to my relationship with Euron and, and being gay and coming out. And my dad's response to that, you know, I remember reading that story in the fir- of the first vision and and Joseph Smith's experience with the angel Moroni and I remember reading about how Joseph Smith told his father about these spiritual experiences that he'd had and his father accepted them without qualification yeah and I remember thinking how fortunate Joseph Smith was to have a father such as that and that's the kind of father that that I have and he's never my father has always said, if John says he has had that kind of a spiritual experience, then I believe it. Yeah. So. Well, that's a good resolution. Thank you for joining us today on Gay Mormon Stories. To discuss this episode with others, please check us out at gaymormonstories.org. If you want to see this podcast continue, please consider making a monthly donation again at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. Music for this podcast was graciously donated by Clayton Pixton. Check him out at claytonpixton.com. Why should this anxious load press down your weary mind?
I'll drive.